podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. Before we start, a word for one of our sponsors, How's That Travel? How's That is a specialist in cricket travel with years of experience taking fans all over the world to bucket list events and once-in-a-lifetime destinations. Join them for the much-anticipated 8th edition of the ICC Men's T20 World Cup played in prestigious venues across Australia. Take a look at their travel packages to follow England for the entirety of the tour. All their packages include guaranteed match tickets, hotel accommodation with breakfast, as well as the option to add international flights and more. Head to howsatravel.co.uk to find out more. There's plenty to cover on this week's show. We've got an interview with quadruple centurion Sam Northeast. We've got a couple of England white ball series to talk about. There's the report into institutional racism in Scottish cricket. There's a round of the county championship to talk through and much more. With me today is the magazine editor of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and the editor-in-chief of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. But let's first go to Mark Butcher to hear his thoughts on England's ODI series against South Africa. First off, Mark, can you name the seven teenagers to play men's international cricket for England? <laughs> no, you know I can't. Uh, <laughs> but, um, Brian Close, there was, there was another guy who played for, um, played for Middlesex, He's, uh, Dennis Compton was one. We had Curran, we've got Hollyoke. Hamid. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Hamid. I mean, it's, you know, quizzes, quizzes live on air is a bit unfair, I thought. Yeah. Um, for listeners who weren't watching the Sky coverage of the third ODI, a peculiarly long stretch of Sky's coverage was devoted to Butch and Owen Morgan, basically ignoring that question from Athers. Anyway, Butch, it was a fairly low-key end to the series. England won the second ODI. Uh, I was there on a stag do watching it from the top tier of the Foster's party stand. England won it, but their increasingly familiar batting problems continued before Livingston and Sam Curran bailed them out. And the new ball attack ran through the South Africa top order. Um, but you've obviously followed Sam Curran's career very closely for a long time now. Um, it's, it's actually seven years since he first played for Surrey. It's now four years since he first played for England. He's still only 24. And I thought it was quite interesting going through Ben Stokes' ODI career when he retired. England basically had no idea how to use him until 2015, which was four years into his ODI career. How do you think England get the best out of Sam Curran? He's batting as well as he's ever done. And with the ball, um, he's bowling really smart, I think, at the moment. His wicket of Miller basically killed off that, that game. And not necessarily obvious how you find room for him in any England side at the moment. No, there isn't. I mean, there, there are lots of things at play at the minute. And I, I feel a little bit... Um... A little bit sorry for Butler and Mott in that there are so many unknowns with their team at the moment. Um, I mean, I don't think they were they were in the loop that Ben was gonna was going to retire. And and forgive me, they might they might have been. So that that that's just speculation on my part. I don't think that it was it it was immediately obvious that that was going to happen. But once that did happen, they then found themselves in a situation whereby they've got no idea when any of their sort of first choice bowling attack might come back. A bowling attack that includes an all-rounder in in Chris Wokes. Um, And they have sort of, you know, there is strength in depth, but not in the the positions perhaps that they they really need it, you know. Um, And so... Sam Curran poses an interesting, um, an interesting solution to, to one or two problems. Um, you know, David Willey has been prominent over the course of 
well, since the Amsterdam series, obviously he's played played in, uh, as a senior bowler in, in all of those games, and he's played in um, the majority of, if not all, of the white ball matches for England so far. But you still get the feeling that that given the choice, they would they would rather it was somebody else, <laughs> um, or that they feel that they might have an option. And it, you know, I think he's a terrific cricketer. Don't get me wrong, um, but but they would ha- there'd be another option that they would choose in front of him, given the chance to have their full strength side out. Um, Sam, I think, as, and as we said, I think on air, uh, has the potential to be, you know, anything as a batter, you know, anything from, from opening to, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, he could bat in any of those places, as well as come in and bash it at seven and eight. You know, he's completely and utterly um, versatile in that role and will only get better as, as a batter. And you're right, with the ball, I, I reckon... I reckon that he might end up being somebody that plays in, in England's white ball at 50 over team, but is not necessarily nailed down for 10 overs. That's what I think with his bowling. I think he's somebody that a captain who's smart enough will realise that there are certain situations, certain scenarios in which he would be very, very useful. Plus, he can also, I think his death bowling is something that is very, very much under, underestimated. And given that without Joffre Arching, they don't have a natural death bowler in that side at the moment, although Reese Topley would stick his hand up and say, I can do that too. Um, having Sam in the team simply for his ability to be able to do that um, is, is, is another great bonus. So he's, he and Reese Topley have been the two big winners, I think, out of, out of what, we, what we've seen so far. Um, and, and the batting lineup perhaps has had a bit of a, bit of a kick up the backside as to, as to say, you know, somebody like Jason Roy... Um, none of those guys can afford to keep resting on what happened before. I think with 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 the talent that is coming up behind um, these players, um, and and I'm sure that they know this. No one can afford to stand still for too long before you know before other people are kind of uh, are jumping jumping in your uh, jumping in your grave, as it were. Just on Sam Curran's batting, I mean, you, you saying that he can bat anywhere in the ODI team—that's that, really high praise for a guy whose numbers aren't actually that good in any format, really. So what, what is it about Curran's batting that makes you think that he's got such a, uh, such a high ceiling, I guess? Um, I, I just think he's just he's wonderfully naturally gifted. And he, has a, he seems to have a sort of an innate understanding of, of sort of games and match scenarios. Now, I'm not saying for a minute that he's ready to open the batting just yet. I just think that he could, he could eventually end up doing that. You know? I don't think there's any reason why why he couldn't but that that often depends on what else England have got going on around them you know in a in a, in a poor one day international team you'd say do it right now in a fabulous one day international team you're looking for the best place to stick him in the midst of in the midst of other players who have their their positions nailed down that's all um i i just i don't know i just he has a he has a terrific ability to to, to strike the ball and and let's face it what are England looking for in their in their white ball players? But that you know, um, and he he hits it as clean and, and as as pure as anybody. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, and I think that there is just something about him um, and his 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 understanding of the the rhythms of the game um, and his sort of competitive um, competitive spirit that kind of gives him gives him something that's unquantifiable at the moment. And you know, the, like you say, the numbers aren't aren't startling anywhere. But then that's basically because he's he's always a utility player. He he doesn't have a position whereby 
um, you know, he's guaranteed to bat X amount of time and is going to, you know, get time to play himself in and do X, Y, Z. He's normally coming in and making an impact. Phil Salt's the main beneficiary of Ben Soakes' retirement in the ODI team at the moment. He came in at the end of that series. There are a lot of really talented young white ball batters in the country and Salt's predominantly an opener and he's going to have to come in if he is going to be the long-ish term option. In the middle order, a role he's not really fulfilled before... Is Salt definitely the guy you'd go for? His his record in domestic T20 cricket outside of England isn't great. He's not torn up the BBL. He's not torn up the PSL. There are so many guys gunning for a shot in the white ball team at the moment. I mean, personally, I was just a little bit surprised that he's jumped to the front of that queue for a middle order spot. I don't know whether or not his presence at the moment is a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a, a reminder to. So perhaps Jason in particular that hey there's there's somebody waiting here to to kind of jump in and fill your shoes um, because you're right I mean it, if if you're looking for a natural player to come in in the, anywhere in the middle order you'd go for Brook instead of Salt wouldn't you I mean that's kind of the way their careers have panned out but again there are there are other criteria that that the England white ball team select on aren't they you know Owen Morgan always had certain players that he would back over others because of a, you know, a knowledge of their, their um, reaction to pressure or whatever it might be. And so there might be something about Phil Salt over Harry Brook that we don't know as yet. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of, I will leave that judgment uh, uh, to them until I, until I know different. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, Brook at the moment is the one guy who's kind of champing at the bit, you know, everyone's, everyone's desperate to see him get a, get a run in the side and, um, for him not to have done that yet when he is in such magnificent form could could be viewed as a missed opportunity. Time will tell. Um, and finally, there's a comment from Joss Butler at the end of the series talking about England's intensity being low in the final game of the series and he referenced how few training days they have at the moment given how compact the schedule is. How important are those training days for pros? Um, they, they are important, yeah. I mean, listen, it's, it's preparation, isn't it? You kind of, you mentally get well, the, what what it felt like. Um, the course of the white ball series, it, it felt like you're back playing county cricket again. It felt like you you know you you turn up, you unpack your kit, you play a game, you pack your kit, you drive somewhere else, you play the game. You know, <laughs> one of the things that I loved um, about 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 playing international cricket over and above county cricket was county county cricket was always an endurance test. You know. Um, and it was as much about your resilience to kind of, you know, to, to, to shutting out, um, you know, lack of stimulus, I suppose, or lack of sort of nerves and, and, and energy and butterflies about the next contest and being able to pull something out of yourself when you were tired and, and kind of perhaps wished you were doing anything but playing cricket. It became, that was the challenge for county cricket. Whereas in test matches, there were, there were events. It always felt like an event. So you had your, you know, your, your, you'd travel and then you would have your allotted practice days and, and the whole thing would build to the, you know, to the event itself. And that was kind of part of the rhythm of playing international cricket, whereby you'd kind of have that natural surge of, of nerves and anticipation prior to the game. Now, in the last however many weeks, with all of these white ball matches jammed up against one another, there hasn't been any of that. And for guys who, who, who predominantly played international cricket over the long over a long period of time just Butler being one of them of course um he's not used to that you know that he's had that, that 
had that taken away or that sort of that's um what do you call it that routine taken away of how you get yourself ready and, and up for international contests and it's um you know it's and it's felt like that for everybody obviously for even us as broadcasters and i'm not certainly not complaining but you kind of you're just going from one game to the next and it doesn't doesn't feel like there's anything special about the next one day international and it shouldn't be like that um but that's where we are right now cheers for your time butch catch you next week we had one podcast review this week that i wasn't completely sure how to take um that you guys might find quite funny i don't think you've seen this i haven't seen this no great pod Good start. Uh, five-star review. This is a five-star review, by the way. Great pod, but Yaz's voice is really irritating. Mm. He's a great host, but needs to sharpen his voice. It's irritating. I don't really know what sharpening Sharpen my voice your means. voice. Um, a bit more received pronunciation, dear boy. Well, uh, that's the first time I've been told to do that. Um, five stars, nonetheless. <laughs> I think I'm fine with people slagging me off as long as they do it within a five-star review. Feel free to continue to do that. We've got a question in from Shervo. He asks, having seen a new look, fresh, exciting England women's side during the South Africa series, is there now any part of you that thinks maybe, just maybe, Australia can be beaten at the Commonwealth Games? England completed their second back-to-back white ball clean sweep over South Africa this week. Two 17-year-olds debuted for England, Alice Capsey and Freya Kemp. Both did well in the third game. Capsey hit four fours in a row in a quick fire 25 and Kemp took two wickets with a left arm seam. Bowling plenty of back of the hand slower balls. Um, Joe, what do you reckon? It's a properly exciting side that bats down to eleven as well. Yeah, in answer to Shervo's question, my my sense is it's a little bit early for them um, with the youth in this side, but I think it's absolutely the right way to go. I think I think we were all quite critical, mildly critical, of the World Cup squad that was selected for the fifty over tournament, and that they kind of stayed with a few of the players who hadn't done quite so well over a few years, and they seemed to be perhaps a little bit too much loyalty. Uh, and I think some of us were keen to have Alice Capsey right in there after her 100 campaign. I think they thought she wasn't quite ready, but now they've blooded Izzy Wong, Alice Capsey, Freya Kemp, who's only 17. Uh, and it is really exciting for the future. And you, wait, you watch the way that Capsey comes out and just plays her shots like she did in the, right from the start of the 100 last last summer. And I think this is absolutely the way, the way to go. There were probably... A few of the kind of old crop who hadn't really justified their positions but had kept them over quite a long period because there wasn't really that pressure from beneath. That's changing now, which is obviously a wholly positive thing. Uh, and we're starting to see some of these young players come through. I think it's just the experience that Australia have. I think it's it's hard to match up these young players with Australians who've been playing in the Big Bash for years, who have won world trophy after world trophy. It's not to say they can't do it, but I think it still feels like a bit of a long shot but another stepping stone towards hopefully getting some kind of parity in the years ahead. Kem's not even played in the 100 yet, so that shows the kind of faith they have in the regional structures at the moment. Yeah, she was injured last year, so she would have played. Um, I interviewed her for the feature we did on the up-and-coming female players and kind of their stories. And it was clear from speaking to people around the team that she was right on the verge of that England call-up. And then it came a couple of weeks later and she... She bats two. She's got a powerful, aggressive hitter, um, which is you know invaluable in the shorter formats. But it's clearly her bowling that's got uh, the England selectors particularly excited. Marzen Cap withdrew from the series and will miss the Commonwealth Games for family reasons. She returned home ahead of the T20I series after her brother-in-law suffered serious injuries in an accident, which left him in intensive care. Safka aren't in a great place at the moment, are they, Phil? Missing quite a lot of their established stars for one reason or another. Yeah, and it's the one reason and another which is 
concerning for them because there's been some conjecture regarding, say, Lizelle Lee's move away from the side um, with uh, contrasting accounts of why she's no longer going to be a part of the setup. She said that she was uh, prevented from playing in the 100 and that it was a decision that was taken with the full knowledge of the coach. The coach has said he didn't know about it. Uh, either way, they've lost you know, one of their icon players. Uh, Dane van Neerkirk is back home. Um, she's not involved in this upcoming Commonwealth Games stuff. Uh, Sune Luce was injured for the, the last part of their pretty disastrous run of games against England. Um, and as you say, Marizan Cap off the back of that incredible 150 in the Test match, she hasn't featured either, albeit for you know unfortunate family reasons. So um, it's a team that's been gutted of its stars, and you can see it on the pitch as well. You can see that, especially at the start of the sorry, at the end of the ODI segment of their of their tour here, where they didn't win a game. Obviously, they drew the Test match, but they didn't win a game. You could sense that they were going through the motions a bit, you know, struggling a bit for. Um, for a bit of spark. Actually, having said that, the last game of the multi-format series, which took place last night, um, you got there was a lot of pride at play, you know, and and they are a very proud cricketing nation. And although talent-wise and skill-wise, they they're obviously weakened for not having those players in it. There was still a lot. There was still a lot to to commend within it, I think. And they they brought one or two players through who's, who I didn't know about who who looked impressive yesterday. Uh, they've got a strong new number three, former javelin thrower called Brits. Uh, and she came in and played nicely last night, albeit they were never really going to threaten England's 170-odd. Um, and I, I interviewed Nat Siva last week in a hotel. Your moment of the week. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Do you want me to do it now? Go for it. Yeah, it's just... it was As you find with these things, teams stay at the same hotel a lot of the time. And so... You have this rather peculiar image of people just sort of drifting around, zombified, jaded in flip flops and and you know branded shirts and, and and shorts, just waiting for the time when they got to get on the bus and go and play another game of cricket, and looking around as the two teams vaguely mixed. There was that sense of inertia, I suppose, and it didn't help that we were in a hotel that was kind of slightly soulless, you know. Um, uh, but I was into, I was speaking to Nat while the other two teams just, as I say, just sort of circulated around, you know. And and when you are in the midst of a long tour and you're not getting any results and you've and you've had your main players gutted from the side, it can feel quite hard graft, I think. And speaking to one or two people close to the team, it has been quite a a tough tour for them. Um, and it, and it's it's not ideal for England either because they are striving to push women's cricket more centrally in the the conversation and it and it is difficult when uh, you come up against a side that does have quality but a lot of that quality isn't actually playing and so it, it does skew the contest a little bit but they haven't been pushovers have they in any sense I, I thought the you know the test match itself was a, was a really good test match that was held back through the weather more than anything else yeah uh, as you say it, last it's, night it's been very one-sided in the, in the one day is really in truth and and I watched I watched all of that game last night, and even though, as I say, they they, they put up a spirited uh, defence, um, they took a wick with their first ball. They got rid of of Sophia Dunkley, um, and there was a there was a bit of sparkle to it. But they, the, the gap in class was vast, you know. And if we're talking about the gap in class between Australia and the rest, 
then there's another gap in class between the rest and the third tier, if you like, of, of women's cricket. And, and South African cricket, which obviously is, is desperately striving for cash. We spoke about that last week, about you know how the IPL is going on tour and swallowing up domestic cricket. They need whatever revenues they can get. And, and there was that sense when I was sitting there at the hotel that sometimes this can be the collateral damage of of uh, member boards not having the money to properly grow and support the game on the margins, you know. And and I would hope that the story of Lizelle Lee is not going to be repeated with other big players, you know, because women's cricket needs more more teams to be competitive if it's going to really flourish on a world level. The county championship, I always say that the rounds have been good, which is occasionally a bit of a stretch, but this one was genuinely fantastic. The headline from the round was Sam Northeast becoming the 10th man to pass 400 in a first-class innings. He scored 410 not out in um kind of crazy Glamorgan win on the final day. Leicester lost by an innings despite scoring 584 in the first innings. Uh, Glamorgan responded with 795 for five before bowling Leicester out for 183 at the end of day four. Joe, you spoke to Northeast this morning about joining the 400 Club. Here is that chat. Welcome to the show, Sam. Uh, first of all, batted. Uh, 410 not out against Leicestershire. Ninth highest first class score in history. Uh, following 105 not out in your previous innings against Knotts. So that's 515 not out going into the championship break. Uh, I imagine it's the break you'd rather not be having at this point. Yeah, it's been actually it's been sort of kind of nice to have this break just to sort of let everything settle and sort of try and sink in this week. I think if I just got back on to another championship game, it wouldn't have been uh, as nice a feeling just to let sort of everything settle in and look back on what was an incredible week. So it's been nice from that point of view, but understand that you want to keep the sort of form going and going into a different format now um, into 50 over stuff will be different. Um, but yeah, so looking back on the last few days has been, it's been great. Um, yeah. A lot of messages has been, um, I've just been, yeah, it's been an overriding feeling to be honest. So up until a couple of weeks ago, you, you were having kind of a steady rather than spectacular season, quite a lot of fifties, but you hadn't got to that hundred until the knots game. Can you put your finger on what's clicked into place? Have you made any changes or, or has your kind of luck just turned? a little bit of um a little bit of the t20 coming around actually it sort of freed me up a little bit i was sort of quite i think not necessarily um i wasn't as free but i just i remember sort of not scoring just my rhythm wasn't quite as as well as liked it. i was scoring sort of runs but not necessarily as as free and having as much rhythm as potentially could have had and then the sort of t20 came along and it just freed me up a little bit and I thought oh, I'll just keep on sort of playing at a bit of a higher tempo into the championship, and um, and that sort of worked. So sort of some really good rhythm um, going into that, and I've sort of done some good sessions with Matt Maynard and my batting coach down in in Canterbury as well. So we just sort of decided to keep that tempo going, and that's been quite nice. It's just worked worked well to sort of in this last block of championship. And the innings itself at Leicester, uh, some of the stats: six hundred and three minutes. 450 balls, 48 boundaries. Is it difficult to wrap your head around those kind of stats just from, from one knock? It is. I mean, I, it's weird because you, you just, I sort of felt like I was just batting, to be honest. Um, and then, you know, like another milestone came, you're like, okay, right, we'll see. Well, you know, that's brilliant. We'll just keep going and see where it takes us. And then you're like, 350, like, blimmin' hell, like, how has this happened? And then to get to 400 was like, 
I think it did like sort of I came off at lunch thinking what has just happened um but it's still sort of try it's sinking in very slowly but I, at some stage um I don't quite realize what I sort of achieved but um and how I've done it if that makes sense it mm. just I was just sort of batting and it just kept happening um and so how to replicate that I don't know I think I just probably try and bat again <laughs> and see where it takes us you know, you hadn't got a double century before, so this is very much uncharted territory when you go beyond that point. Do you have any kind of techniques to maintain focus or, or concentration in general and in, in this innings? I think um, I sort of mentioned it before that I think it was all my coaches from previous years have basically were like, you, you never got enough, keep going. Um, you know, because I think sometimes we think we've got to do something different, we've got to you know, score quicker or, you know, what the team scenario is. But if you just keep batting and we were batting at a good tempo, everything was going well. I just, you know, just kept going at that, that same, that same pace. But I, as I think the, the game scenario just kept me going the whole way through, you know, we sort of walked in at nine for two, we're in a bit of trouble and then good partnership with Colin. And then, you know, then we try to try to avoid the follow on and then to start the new day um, to try and get ahead of Leicester and, and force a win so there was always game scenarios which just kept me in check and kept me going um rather than necessarily it being day one and you're know, trying to put a big score on the board um they just those game scenarios just kept me in check i read that your dad watched every ball on the live stream that's an impressive effort in itself does, does he watch every ball of every innings or did he tune in particularly knowing that you're uh, that you're onto something special um he, he watches quite a lot i wouldn't say he watches sort of every game but he watched this one from the start, which was nice. And um, apparently they have to pause it, you know, so like if they have to go and do something, they pause it and come back in. And then they decided to turn their phone off because they were getting so many messages. <laughs> they didn't want to know what was happening. So they were like pausing it and then turning their phone off. And, and uh, yeah, so that was, yeah. I think they actually finished the innings at about like three o'clock when I came off at lunch because they were like <laughs> too busy pausing it. So they didn't really know. And when I text them, I didn't get a reply. So, so yeah, they, they had a bit of a special way of watching it, I guess. Was there any chat in the dressing room about letting you go for Lara's record of 5-0-1 or did the match scenario always take precedence there? I think the match scenario always took precedence. I think there was a conversation around, firstly, if we got enough runs for the Leicester to not bat again with the amount of time because that would have taken time out of the game. So maybe did we need an extra 30, 40 runs, you know, to then have attacking fields, et cetera, and not worry about um, Leicester going past us. Did we have enough time? Was it overs? Um, and then I think, you know, as every sort of good coach would do was, was like, you know, how much of these personal milestones would mean a lot to me and Cookie, you know, cause Cookie was on one nine one. Um, you know, the six wicket record partnership of all time, you know, was 28 runs away. And obviously I could have just sort of kept creeping up that, that ridiculous list. So I think Matt was checking in as well to make sure that we weren't, you know, I didn't want to have a disgruntled, two disgruntled players at the end of the day. Um, but also I wanted to see where the, so the game scenario um, was at. But I think we all felt that it was the right time and that they made the final decision and declaration and you know proved to be an unbelievable one yeah and i guess it must have made the innings more special that not only you played played in innings like that but that it came in a win and, and also a really important win with glamorgan clearly right in the mix for promotion this season 
Yeah, absolutely. It was an important, important win. I think at a nice, I think when we declared, I thought we, we had a, an outside chance of winning that game um, because the pitch was so flat. Um, but the bowlers just, we got a little, little way in and then they just, they turned it on. It was an unbelieving, unbelievable bowling performance and it puts us right in the mix now for promotion. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was an important win and, and September is going to be a big month for us. When we spoke late last year, just after you'd arrived at Glamorgan, you talked about wanting to leave a kind of legacy at the club and you've already done that on an individual level, clearly. Is there now a sense that you have a real opportunity to do that as a team as well? It's a long time. I think it's 2005 since Glamorgan were last in the top tier. It would be a really significant moment for the club if you can do that. Yeah, absolutely. And that was what sort of drawed me to going to Glamorgan was sort of winning the one-day trophy last year and trying to build on top of that some really good players some good young players coming through and to try and um, you know, get back to, to Div 1, you know, compete in all formats. Um, and speaking to, to Wally and Matt, they had that, those ambitions last year. And so if we can do this uh, for the first year of, of trying, that would be, be great. And if we can keep slowly building on that, because I think Glamorgan's got a lot to offer. It's got... Um, from you know, we're the only club in Wales, obviously, and if we can keep growing cricket in that in that region, um, that'd be fantastic. Um, I'm probably going to shock you by not asking about your England Test ambitions because I think there's only so many times <laughs> you can answer that question. But I did want to ask you about the transformation of the Test team this summer and whether you've seen any evidence of that change in approach having an impact in county cricket and the way that the county game is being played. Have you seen any hints of that so far? I think so. I think it's. I think it will naturally do that. I think like the England white ball side did that and it's slowly seeping down into county cricket. I think that that would be the same. I think it's more of a sort of a, a, sort of a philosophy of positive approach without necessarily being reckless and going out and trying. Everyone's going to try and absolutely tear it up now from ball one. I don't necessarily see that. But I think it, it just shows you what happens when you give players freedom to play and that positive uh, reinforcement um, and positive sort of communication um, has really made a difference. And when you, you, know, you let people like Joe Root and Johnny Bairstow, you let them be, try and be as good as they can be, you sort of reap the rewards. And at times, I think, you know, we, as sort of Englishmen, we can be a bit negative. We know we'd like to sort of, grind things out you know you can't do this you can't do that but actually the way McCallum's come in and said you know let the boys play with freedom I'm sure there'll be a sort of a balancing act at some stage but at the moment why not let everyone go out and play and I think you know county crickets can, can definitely take something from that. And do you think has it had any impact on you personally watching I think a lot of us have been kind of re-appraising of how red ball cricket should and could be played has it caused you to have those kind of uh, conversations or, or thoughts as well, whether you can go out and do it slightly differently, and did that have an impact potentially even on the innings you just played? No, I think so. I, 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 I think it's sometimes I remember just thinking in the middle, just always about taking the positive option and, and more positive reinforcement in my mind, and it's not necessarily about you know what could go wrong or this scenario or you know we're we're just about to you know uh, not avoid the follow-on and stuff like that, you know, and having negative thoughts like that, you just keep. Keep playing, keep playing with um, positive intent, and um, I think that there's loads of conversations in changing rooms at the moment, and I think it's a good thing. 
So it's some of our young batters are, you know, they're going, they're looking at that and going, right, how can I adapt to the way I'm playing at the minute? And I think that would be a good thing. And, and everyone will come down to a way of their tempo in, um, in county cricket or the tempo that they play at. Um, but I, I think the sort of Kumar Sangakara sort of thing, which was doing the rounds in terms of the videos being sent as well, his little um, sort of Sky Pod masterclass as well. I thought that was that was brilliant, and his mindset and the way he went about it, um, and constantly sort of challenging yourself and not protecting what you've already sort of achieved in your career. I thought that was an interesting message as well. Joe, um, Northeast has had a very very good county career without playing for England, but it's had a difficult couple of years. He's moved around a few counties. Um, and Joe, he, he mentioned something that's quite interesting about how he's been influenced by the way England are playing, despite him not being part of that England setup at all. Yeah, well, as you heard in the interview, I couldn't bring myself to ask him again about his England ambitions because, I mean, I've asked him that about eight <laughs> times over the course of however many years I've been speaking to him. Um, but I did, I did want to kind of get a sense of if this idea that England are going to play this brand of Test cricket is filtering down to counties and teams and individuals, and and obviously from his answers there, you can see that it that it is that. It's not necessarily I need to play like that to be in the test team, but there is just a kind of reappraisal of what you can do in Red Bull cricket and the and the way you can go about it. And that, as he said, it that kind of helped drive him in his in his innings. Um, he wasn't having a fantastic season by any means. He was having a sort of average-ish season up until the last couple of weeks, and now it's just absolutely exploded. And then there'll be all the same questions about should he play for England. I, in truth. I wouldn't. Exp- I still don't think overall he'll play Test cricket. I think there are so many people competing for spots now, um, and he's of an age that they might look at younger models. Not that he's old by any means, but Harry Brook is still the next man in waiting and has had an unbelievable season. So you're going to do well to leapfrog him. Um, but it's a it's a nice story him going to Glamorgan. I think it took people by surprise. He would have had many offers. Uh, he told me last November that. He liked Glamorgan for the flexibility they were going to offer him. He could spend a bit of time in, in Canterbury. He's got a young family, or in Kent, sorry, with his young family. But also the, the sense that this was a club actually going somewhere. Um, they've got a really good blend of some older players. They've got some gun overseas players, which always helps. Colin Ingram's come back in having not played Red Bull cricket for a few years and is just reeling off 100 after 100, which which helps. He's actually done much better than Labashane did. Um, so now there is a real sense that you look at the table, they could even win it. They're not far off from knots at all. Middlesex have sort of faded slightly. Um, so I think it it's kind of starts to feel like it's Glamorgan's to lose at this point. Elsewhere, the, the influx of India players in the county game is continuing to have an impact. Pajara scored another double time for Sussex. He's now scored 17 double hundreds in first-class cricket, which out of 55 first-class hundreds overall. And he's right up there on the all-time list of double hundreds, which if you think of the, the, the all-time list for normal hundreds is just blokes who'd retired 100 years ago pretty much and Ramrakash um, it's kind of <laughs> extraordinary that, that Pajara is that how many, so how many again sorry 17 doubles out of 55 <laughs> that, is, that is low I think um, it, is it this is it right that this year every time he's got 50 he's got 100 or maybe one yeah, in first class cricket in yeah, for Sussex that's right yeah, yeah. I mean and just imagine goals. being a county attack and Pajara's kind of 30 40 and you're like oh no <laughs> we've not we've not got him he's going to be in for a long old time I really want Pajara to have a go at getting 100 first class 100 he doesn't play white ball cricket anymore you could just play loads of first class games every season what's he on? The he's on 55 it's quite a way to go it's quite a long way to go but he, he's he's probably the a few only more person seasons at Hove and he might yeah he's the only he person who probably plays enough first class cricket in a year to to actually score 10 a year 
Um, he seems like the sort of bloke who's got the drive ambitious. <laughs> just to keep going. But yeah, 4,500s might, might be a stretch. That's true. That's true. Navdeep Saini and Washington Sunder both at Fife as in very important wins for, for Lancashire and Kenner opposite ends of the table. Yeah, just, just on um, Washington Sunder, brilliant signing, as we said. Amazing signing. Yeah. And again, you know, more forward thinking class by Lancashire. Uh, really excellent cricketer. He's already usurped the other homegrown spinners at Lanks. Um, and interestingly, in that context, Matt Parkinson was dropped for this game and he was whacked the game before. And, um, you know, the game comes at you quick, right? You know, irrespective of our own soft spot for Matt Parkinson, he's had a, he's had a rough few weeks. And suddenly you go from being in sort of in Bumble's all-time Lancashire eleven and being the golden boy of that club, if not international cricket yet, to being relegated not just out of the 11 but out of the squad as well for that big game uh, at Old Trafford and and you you, you you just you just feel for these lads you know you, you can be you can be the next great thing in 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 April and struggling to to hold down your place in May and and we see that the game comes at you so fast we were talking about one or two others you know who have featured for England it's not this year, and certainly in the last six months to, to a year. Uh, and how how quickly those names move down the list well, as mean, others move up. There are quite a few players who played for England in the last two years who are aged 25 or under who are nowhere near playing for England at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's Jack Morley's in the team ahead of him who took uh, five from the fourth innings a couple of weeks ago. So he's, 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 it's quite hard to leave someone like that out and... Washington doing so well as well. In that Lanks game that they won, Josh Bohannon scores a really important fourth innings 100 um, in the win over North Ants. In Division 2, Ben Duckett and Haseeba Mead put on 402 for the second wicket for Knots against Derbyshire. Duckett scored 241 and Hamid scored a career best at 196. He's having a really good season after a very difficult winter. Mm. And it's not just the number of runs, uh, it's the, the rate which at which he's them. scoring them. He's, he's striking it well above 50, which is something that even when he's had good seasons in the past, has not, ne- ne- not necessarily been a feature of his game. Do you think it might be a case for saying they brought him back too quickly? I mean, it felt like that at the time. I think we... St- well, everyone basically said at the time that that was such a unique position where there was no one obvious to open the batting for England. That Terrible timing though, wasn't it? Yeah. And it, it might well be the end of his test career mm. as a result. We, we, we what, said... One of those sliding doors moments, really. Yeah. We, we said at the time, although we all sort of tentatively, with r- romance ruling our heads, we wanted to see how it would go. But we, we knew, we, we all said that if you're going to ask for the worst possible baptism, then it's going to be those bouncy tracks with that technique. Um, and it was exposed massively. And also that gone India attack at home as well. Yeah, yeah, where he did okay, yeah, within reason. You know, he made a couple of 50s and, and that 50 he made at Headingley was very important in the context of that, that win. Um, but if ever there's a case for a player to be um, horses for courses batter, then, then it is Hasib Hamid. It's been really heartening to see that he's come back. He's secured his position in the knots in the knots top order. As Joe says, you know they they're kind of co-favourites to go up. Um, he he he's clearly evolved his game. Peter Moore said last year there's great flow to his game, which has been evident in the way that he's gone about his game this year. He's hit a lot of boundaries as well, so they're not you know he's not kind of crabbing around. Um, he's playing his shots. 
so when you say horse of courses, then we got got Pakistan in October. When, um, yeah. Crawley, what twenty seven ball duck today? I don't know how much longer you can persist with Crawley when he makes no runs in county cricket, but plays the odd innings, which was <laughs> it was crucial in Test cricket. But so you, you think Hamid would be a a reasonable alternative to Crawley as, as soon as October? Um, based on how he's gone this year, then and based on his. Uh, capacity against spin bowling historically he plays the turning ball nicely. Uh, yeah, he should be a part of that conversation, I guess. Um, ben Duckett as well should probably be a part of that conversation. If you're looking for a punchier version of a top order player, he's made good runs. There is that caveat. It's a necessary caveat because there are some easier runs in in Div- Division Two than there are in other parts of Division Two. Um, so you do have to take that into account. That said, Duckett has. As he says, he says himself, was it to you, in fact? He says, you know, my first-class record is superior to a lot of players who are getting chances. Yeah, I think to me, he basically, he basically said that he, he, he does... Was it to you, sorry. When he When he sees certain players play for England, he does look at their records and go, yeah. I'd be less surprised to see Duckett recalled than Hamid looking, mm. at, looking at this this winter. Yeah. Uh, and he, overall, he's done more to warrant it as well. And he's had good years in the lead-up <laughs> to this. He's never really had an absolute stinker of a county year. It was his... His, uh, you know, just had a, a, quite a harrowing experience against a very good India attack in India. Talking about when you get your opportunities, mm. Duckett was very unfortunate to to be stuck in on some very difficult pitches against Ashwin. And I think his his natural tempo is one that suits the way in which England are playing at the moment. And, and also in white ball cricket, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he finds his way into the ODI side at some point as well. Obviously got that gap at four with Stokes having gone. He's found his place at three. He's opened before. He's opened for England. The number three slot, you feel, has probably been sewn up for the rest of the summer, for sure, um, with Pope in there. And so it looks like there's more of a of a window up up the top than, than there would be in, in the top to middle order. Uh, but you could absolutely see a player like that who plays with a bit of dash and daring, he's left-handed as well, you could see them having a look at a player like that and fancying him in this new way. And they've already shown with Pope picking him at a three, they're not overly fussed what position you bat in for, count, for your county if they think you can do a job in the position they want then there's every chance yeah just looking at his career he's 27 he's got 22 first class 100 averages 42 in first class cricket if he hadn't played those handful of games as a 21 year old everyone would be going like why the hell is this guy not playing exactly yet? and those games shouldn't discount him from being picked now exactly. they're, they're, he was very young when he got picked that was well that was him and Hamid's first tour together wasn't it yeah a, a long long time ago Joe what's your moment of the week I'm prepared for a little rant here <laughs> yeah, I've been working myself up. So the the moment itself is is another win for Hampshire, who are kind of hot on Surrey's tail. Um, six wicket win over Gloucestershire at Cheltenham. Fourteen points behind Surrey with four games to go, including the current one, which they're playing against Yorkshire, which they're ahead in that one as well. Um, Kyle Abbott took five wickets in twelve balls in that win against Gloucester, including a hat trick, and he's taken six more against Yorkshire in the first inning. Good attack they've got with Mohammed Abbas. Keith Barker, we know all about that. It's a very, very good attack. Um, Sorry, going to take some catching. Unbeaten all season. Hampshire have won seven of their ten matches, uh, and this should and could still be one of the one of the great title races potentially. But in my view, there is a massive flaw in it, which I think I'm sure a lot of people are already aware of. But I think in the coming weeks, people are going to be increasingly aware of it that with Division One as ten teams and they only play fourteen matches. You do the maths, not everyone plays each other twice. Uh, Surrey and Hampshire, the best two teams in the division, 
We'll only play each other once this season. Surrey beat Hampshire by an innings at the Oval uh, in the second week of April. Uh, and Hampshire don't get to host Surrey in return. Also, Surrey don't have to go to Chelmsford to play Essex. Again, one of the most notoriously tough places to go. So if you look at the fixture list, Surrey have basically had their two most difficult games not included because you don't play everyone twice. Now that, you know, we know the difficulty with the schedule, but I think that is uh, pretty farcical, really, and could go a long way towards deciding the title. That's not to say Surrey aren't good enough to win it and, you know, they might well win the title even if they did have to play those games. But the, the fact that we'll never know is a real problem for me. And I think they've just got the divisions the wrong way around. I think there should be eight in Division 1. Everyone plays each other twice. Div 2 can be uh, 10 teams. And if they don't play each other twice, that's less of a problem because it's the second tier. The, the premier four-day competition should be equal in every sense. And it's not. And uh, I fear come the end of the season, there's going to be a bit of a, almost like an asterisk <clears throat> against Surrey's title one because they won't have had to play these two, what should have been massive games. I mean, if you compare it to other sports, can you imagine Premier League, you know, Man City beat Liverpool at the Etihad in the first week of the season and then don't have to go to Anfield because they just haven't got time to fit in all the fixtures. It's Cricket is obviously peculiar and odd in loads of ways, but doesn't help itself sometimes. And, and this is another example of it just being weird. And also we know from, from recent-ish years of how, how great it is having that blockbuster final fixture where it is between one and two in the table and a result for number two can win in the title. Absolutely. And I, I, have, I was speaking to James Vince um, about their kind of T20 win, um, but also just how the season's panned out. Asked him about this. And, you know, he's understandably frustrated. They all knew at the start of the season. It's not obviously not a, not a surprise, but he, he was in agreement with me, really, that, that there should be eight teams in, in Div 1 and everyone plays each other twice and, and, and the best team wins. And That's, that's a, uh, Tom Wesley's perspective as well. So there's it? two top flight skippers... Uh, and the, the feeling is that 10 teams is maybe pushing it a little bit with regards to the dispersal of talent. Um, but if you were to focus on the top eight, they are very good cricket teams. Um, the, 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 the other proposal uh, is 12 teams in the top division with six uh, in the second tier and them just playing each other once reducing the number of four-day games uh, that's a proposal that is that has um, got a bit of energy via Strauss key Rob key pointedly refused to rule anything in or out he's getting better he's getting better and better that, that's problematic on the one hand because of course you'll be reducing the number of fixtures uh, it has a certain advantage on the other because you'll be channeling the, the intensity upwards and you'll be allowing fast bowlers to really let it go and not feel like they're being swamped by the calendar you've got you'll have members who will be pissed off because there'll be a reduction four day games you would also have some teams would have six home games some teams would have five which when you can prepare your own pitches is is a, is a reasonably significant advantage yeah yeah um the positive i suppose is that you'd have fewer teams in the second tier so fewer teams playing you know reduced cricket if you like in inverted commas uh as ever with cricket, there's pros and cons to all of it. My my instinct is 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 an eight team top division, as as Joe's outlined. I think over the course of a summer, uh, fourteen games spread across what is now a big chunky 
expanded and bloated summer, I think 14 games is eminently manageable. Just on the differences between the top and the bottom of the league, one side down at the bottom of the league that we might not have necessarily expected to be is Warwickshire. They won the championship last year. They're currently in eighth place. Um, they're doing all right at the time of recording against Surrey, but um, they've only won one game out of 10 so far in the season. They've, they've really struggled and could well go down. Yeah, they're definitely, they're in real trouble. Uh, their bowlers have had a shocker, really. Uh, Hannon Dalby's been brilliant um, and they've, not had Norwell he's playing in this game against Surrey but not only had him for I think three games this season so that's been a massive loss but um, Craig Miles who was brilliant in their championship winning campaign last year just hasn't hasn't gone at all well this year conversely the batting has gone quite well but then everyone's batting has gone well so Sam Haynes had a fantastic year Burgess has had a good year Um, but even last year I mean it was it was a a phenomenal achievement for Warwickshire to win the title because actually there weren't stunning seasons across the board. It was a real kind of team effort. And I think they were probably uh, played above the sum of their parts. And so I'm not hugely shocked by what's happened. It didn't feel like when we've had dominant sides win before, you think, oh, well, they're going to be right in the mix again next year. I thought Warwickshire would be kind of mid to lower table and they've been a little bit below that because their bowlers haven't quite come off. But yeah, Somerset right down there as well. Um, North Ants have probably put a cat amongst the pigeon by being better than people thought they would because they've just been very hard to beat. I think they've only won one game, but they just don't really lose very many. Uh, good things are happening at North Ends. You know, good club to like, good club to get behind. They've done, they did well in the, the T20 stuff to bring in a couple of big names as well. And they do a lot of things right, I think, North Ends. And, and Kent were looking really poor. Their bowling attack has just been battered all year, but they've suddenly kind of swapped their pea shooters for cannons with Matt Henry's back taking a fifer today and then uh, Saini, the Indian seamer, suddenly they've got an international class new ball attack, which Helps. You know, is always going to make a bit of a difference. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Performance of the week. Will Jacks hit That's my moment of the week. Is That's it? my moment of the week. All yours. Yeah, huge win for Surrey. Uh, at one point, it didn't look like it was going to happen, but it was a huge win, not only because they get the, the points, but also depriving Essex of the points. Because we were saying before that game, if Essex won that game, they were right in it. Now it's it's a bit of a push for them to yeah they're, to, they're to, not going to win challenge not now um, so sorry we're 112 for seven in response to Essex's 271 then Jacks not only marshaled the tail superbly but he just kind of exploded at the end in a way that uh, very few players think in England can he raced from 100 to 150 in 16 balls smashed Harmer for how many and over 20 odd and over or something like yeah, that yeah it was 20 something he finished up with eight sixes I think the majority of which came off Harmer and it put sorry top of the league. And it's another big performance from Jax, who averages over 50 with a bat in the championship this year, who talking about people who could possibly go to Pakistan in the year. He's got to be in with a shout. I know he's not taking loads of wickets, but he is also in the team as their primary spinner. And if England are looking for a batting all-rounder who can give some overs of spin and Moeen Ali, I know he said he wants to go, but there's no guarantee that he actually goes. Jax is one of the players in the country who, who fits that mould. Well, Gareth Batty made the Jax Moeen Ali comparisons at the start of the season, uh, which I think took people rather aback because they weren't expecting him to bowl that much, but he has mm. been primary spinner. It doesn't say a lot for the future of Verdi and Moriarty at, at Surrey as, as Red Bull spinners, but it's not horses for courses. Batty says we are picking our best spinner. It just so happens he's also a gun white ball batter who is now turning into a really good cool Red Bull player as well. And I absolutely agree. I think, you know, if England are doing it, if Stokes and McCullum are doing a short list of players who could come into this squad, Jax is going to be right in there. Absolutely. Averages 55, though, with the red ball. Yeah. 
He's also bowled some really, yeah, I mean, that's obviously not great. I've also seen him bowl some really good balls this year and he's still learning. I think that's, yeah. the, he's not bowled yeah. much with a red ball at all. So, you know, he would go as a batter who could bowl some overs. He can't go as your, he couldn't even go yeah. as your second spinner. And, Third yeah. spinner at best, really. Yeah, a kind of Sam Curran-like. Exactly that. And it is, his, it is his first season, possibly in his life, where he's been a frontline spinner. So uh, you'd expect, I mean, Gareth Batting knows a thing or two about bowling with a red ball in professional cricket so he obviously seen something that he likes and obviously working very closely yeah i mean it's pointless pretending otherwise though and, and this is not a criticism it's just an observation but they've they've set their team up in an interesting way this year that i don't think many people would have expected they've gone heavy on the quicks there's always a bit of grass at the oval there's a bit of pace and bounce at the oval we've seen it in this game currently taking place and the spinner is a batter who, who bowls a bit and he's been playing a containing role and we're now into almost august uh, and it's just interesting that Batty has been very vocal and very eloquent on the issues of marginalising England spin bowlers. Uh, that said, he would rightly turn around and say, well, Moriarty and, and Verdi are not in my first choice choice 11, and Will Jacks is, is, a, is a better prospect, and that's how he would legitimately see it. And He's also an interim coach who probably wants the job full-time, and he can win his club a championship title and this well, he's going the right way to do it so. yeah they have been incredible this year sorry just on the influence you mentioned earlier of the the way England are playing on individual players I do wonder if it's is a bit of that in terms of how Surrey set up as well so in their last two run chases Jamie Overton has batted four and five as they basically just sought to hit some quick runs and make life easier for the more established batters I guess and, and that's worked in those two run chases as well um, other bits of county news uh, Ollie Stone is often not at the end of the season uh, and Ollie Robinson is back in action for Sussex for the first time since May and straight away picked up three very good new ball wickets, including Hamid and Duckett, who we talked about early in the show. Um, we've got a message in from a listener called Sum, who says, Hi Yaz, with all the doom and gloom in relation to racism in cricket, rightly so, there is a shining light for all youngsters with the story of Kashif Ali. Kashif has faced adversity and has triumphed. Worcestershire have given him an opportunity and he's going to be a star. Um, we've mentioned Kashif Ali a couple of times this summer. He's a he top scored on his first class debut yesterday with a half century for Worcestershire. He's uh, a player associated with Saka, the South Asian Cricket Academy, who describe themselves as an intervention program designed to tackle the inequalities highlighted by research regarding the lack of British South Asian representation in professional cricket. And not only has Kashif Ali. Uh, done well in his first class debut but also this week Andy Omid a Scottish batter who's once on Warwickshire's books has become the first Saka player to secure a long-term county contract uh, we'll cover Saka in a bit more depth later in the summer but they're doing some amazing work um, at the moment and to, to see those two players come in for something that hasn't been established for that long is, um, is, is pretty remarkable less heartening though this week is the news that's come from Scotland uh, a report into racism in Scottish cricket has outlined 448 examples of institutional racism at Cricket Scotland and found that Cricket Scotland failed 29 of their 31 indicators that show uh, institutional racism present. They did not pass the other two. It was just they weren't found to have failed them. The entirety of the Cricket Scotland board has re resigned in anticipation of the report's findings. One regional district has been referred for further investigation. Some allegations have been forwarded on to Police Scotland and it was found that some allegations of racism were not investigated at all by Cricket Scotland. Uh, Louise Tideswell, the managing director of Plan for Sport, the organisation that conducted the report, 
said, over the review period, we've seen the bravery of so many people coming forward to share their stories, which have clearly impacted their lives. The reality is that the leadership of the organisation failed to see the problems and in failing to do so, enable a culture of racially aggravated microaggressions to develop. Um, former Scotland internationals Majid Hack and Kasim Sheikh have been at the forefront of bringing the issue of racism in Scottish cricket to the fore and should be commended for their roles in doing so. Uh, I mean, the, the report is pretty grim reading and something that we're becoming depressingly used to in British cricket. Uh, we'll be covering the story both on the podcast, online and on the magazine in, in a bit more depth in the weeks ahead. Elsewhere, India are 2-0 up against West Indies in an ODI series, so that wasn't long for them travelling from one one white ball tour to another. Um, both games have been very, very tight. They won the first game by three runs and the second one by two wickets with two balls remaining. Axar Patel hit 64 off 35 to win it for India. And, um, and Shai Hope made 100. Yeah, on his 100th ODI game as well. Now, there is a strange player. Hard to, <laughs> yeah. hard to put him into a bracket. Um we mentioned in last week's show that Freddie Flintoff's Field of Jeans was quite good, but we couldn't really talk about it because I was the only one who watched it. Um, Phil, you've now watched it. Joe, have you watched any of it? I haven't watched it, so I can't talk about okay. it, but, but I am going to watch it. So really maybe good. I can talk about it next week. <laughs> um, but Phil, you have now watched it. I watched them all. Um, it's, the, it's the show where Flintoff starts uh, a cricket team slash club in his hometown of Preston. Uh, the majority of the players have never played cricket before and hadn't really heard of Flintoff either. Uh, what, were your, what were your thoughts on the show? Lovable and gripping um, and naive and uh, idealistic. Uh, I watched it with, with my wife, um, who obviously wouldn't sit through a cricket documentary, but it wasn't really a cricket documentary. It was a, it was a documentary about social mobility or the lack of. It's a documentary about, you know, satellite towns and post-industrial towns in parts of the country that have been forgotten about. That's what it was about to me, really, and cricket was a just a vehicle by which people could young people could find a different different way out of of what was otherwise a pretty marked out path uh, for them um the the kids who were featured and obviously this is tv so everything is massaged and manipulated a little bit but the kids who were featured were uh fascinating characters i thought um Sean the you know the the live wire brilliant character you know, and, and he's got his head down now on an apprentice, a plumbing apprenticeship, which is good to see. Uh, Adnan, of course, the Afghan refugee whose story, Flintoff's jaw hit the floor when he heard the story. Um, and if that tiny microcosmic story can resonate with people and they realise what sacrifices these these young kids and these individuals have to undertake in order just to try and escape a war-torn country, if a few people's heads can be turned when they think they're watching a nice cutesy cricket documentary with the Top Gear presenter and former England all-rounder, Andrew Flintoff, and they, then they get details such as that and these true human stories, then, then I think that's a very positive thing. Um, the notion that good old cricket can save the world, I mean, I've been banging that drum increasingly hollow and discordantly for many, many years, and when it's presented to you like that, it's quite easy to see through the, the, you know, the, the sheen of... of naivety I suppose but look the overall feeling as I came out of it was was one of, of heartwarming joy and so much of it flows from from the big man who 
who's post-career life I haven't paid any attention to because he does TV shows that I'm not interested in. I don't care about cars. He exists I don't a, care about the other stuff. He but, exists in a very weird sphere for cricket fans. In that he, he does. Was, he was the face of English cricket for so long and now he is genuinely famous for, for stuff completely unrelated to cricket. Yeah. So the point when, when he came back to do 100 stuff last summer... He almost felt like an outsider. Yeah. He was like, what, what, what does he know? And he's like, oh no, he, he, he was quite good actually. He, he does know his cricket. But, but he, the sincerity with which he does this show is you can't put that on. Hmm. Uh, and it becomes a genuine labour of love for, for him. Kyle mm. Hogg as well is the sort of sleeper star of it. So Kyle Hogg's the coach of oh, these, of these okay. lads who are, who are drawn together from the, the nooks and crannies of Preston life. Taking time out from his, from his bands. Yeah, from his, yeah. yeah, from his A&R work. Uh, but he, he's, the, he's the sleeper star. And Tudes is in it right at the start for, for reasons that aren't exactly clarified. And then right at the end when they have a sort of fundraiser, a celebrity fundraiser, Panasar plays and Vaughan plays and, and, and Tudes turns up and says some lovely things. Uh, but they... The, the, they find the derelict old ground, the ground that Fred used to play at when he was a kid, and it used to be a good place to go and play cricket, and it's been left to ruin, hasn't it? And I found that very depressing, that Flintoff, who's clearly not been there for quite a long time, he basically says, this club was one of the, one of the nicer ones in town, and he turns up having not been there for over 20 years, and it's totally derelict, no one's looking after it, Yeah, and, and when I say naive, it's not meant as a criticism, um, that club would not have been given a lick of paint, let alone a 200 and 300 grand makeover of which Fred put 25 of his own, 25 grand of his own money and 25 as a fundraiser, pledged as a fundraiser as well. But the council covered 250 grand's worth of this, this complete overhaul renovation of this derelict, well, this knackered old cricket, gr- cricket club. Where the naivety comes in is, is to think that if there weren't BBC cameras and Flintoff there, that these councils, these put-upon councils... This is not happening up and down the country. Exactly, whose budgets have been squeezed through austerity anyway. They end up recognising that, yeah, quarter of a million for for that cricket club to become a hub of the community. I mean, those conversations would be laughed with just a big black line through the the minutes of any meeting. And so there was a sense there that, that there was... It was for the cameras, you know. But look, better that it happened than it didn't. Hmm. But this notion that that would be happening anywhere else is fanciful. But, and also, it also just, hasn't been paid. I read this last week. Really? Yeah. So the, the contractors haven't been paid yet. Interesting. That well, was last week. Might have changed. One of my takeaways is like, a Freddie Flintoff born in 2008 rather than 1978, however old he is, there's no chance of playing, having the career that he ends up. Like the kids that he comes across there weren't just not into cricket. They'd basically never heard of it or never seen anyone play. They couldn't name a cricketer. They had no idea who Flintoff was. So it was like heartening and quite depressing for the game at the, at the same time, I thought. Yeah, there was one lad who, whose granddad knew, loves his cricket. So he knew who Flintoff was, but he was literally, I think, the only kid who knew who, knew who Andrew Flintoff was. And this is Preston. You know, he's, he's literally got the freedom of Preston. <laughs> you can take 60 sheep through Preston High Street. Um, and finally, we've got an interview with um, specialist batting coach Toby Radford. who has got a new book out. Um, essentially on the art of batting. He he talks us through what he's learned as a batting coach and he even helps me out with a few few technical troubles of my own. So thanks, Toby, for that. Um, here is that chat with Toby. 
Now time for something a little bit different to normal. We're joined by Toby Radford, a former coach at Middlesex, former West Indies batting coach. He's got a new book out, Getting to Grips. Um, Toby, this isn't a coaching manual as such, but more what you've learned over the years as a batting coach, but in a very visual way for a book. Yeah, it's sort of a, a technical breakdown of batting, um, ideally to sort of help players and coaches. Um, and I think anyone who sort of loves the game, to be honest. Um, how it came about was when I was working with the West Indies and I was still based in Cardiff. And in between series, the players would go back to the Caribbean. I'd come back to Cardiff and they would send little videos of themselves batting. Uh, and I would analyze them, send my thoughts and my images back on WhatsApp. Um, you know, the, the wonders of modern technology, really. And they really appreciated that. That then grew during the pandemic. I started to offer it out to the public. People were sending me videos from different parts of the world. Um, and, and, and then that developed into an Instagram post, which had huge, um, uh, you know, a lot of people really sort of liked that, especially in Asia, particularly. Um, and then I thought, you know, what, it'd be lovely to put this into a book because the visual part of it, the drawings, the diagrams, simplifying technique in many ways, I think people really quite liked it. So I thought, you know, let's put it all in one document and it's getting to grips. And that's the, the, the finished product, as it were. So you saw how popular that kind of analysis was and then you were like, yeah, this should be, people would be interested in a book like this. Yeah, I think so. It, you know, as you said, it, it is quite a visual book. There's obviously written stuff there. It's, it's from my, my whole philosophy of batting is starting at the fundamentals, the basics of a good setup, being well balanced. If you're well balanced at the crease when the ball is being released, then actually I don't believe the shots are that difficult to play. The other thing I found in my sort of 10 years of working, you know, as an international batting coach with some of the best players and playing against the best players is that there are sort of key fundamentals that, that the top players have. You know, they may have their own flair, their own different shots, they play their own styles, and it would be a very boring game, I think, if everyone played the same way. But what you actually find when you study it, they all meet four or five key things. Uh, you're probably going to ask me, what are the five key things? Uh, at ball release, they generally, they have their head in and around off stump. They align their body, so the feet, hips, and shoulders align towards the, the bowler's stump, certainly if right hand is facing a right arm over. They keep the hands and the back very, very close to the body for better balance. They don't move to the early line of flight of, of the ball. They wait, they track the ball, and they move to the finishing line of the ball, and they play from a stable base. Now, whether that's Virat Kohli, uh, Ben Stokes, Joe Root, they will all tend to meet those four or five key fundamentals. And as a batting coach, um, you know, as a, or as a, you know, certainly I'm always looking to see if players can, can, can meet those fundamentals. So, so when you're working as a coach, do you, do you think that there is one correct, perfect way of, of batting or is it more getting those four or five fundamentals right and then from there on kind of letting a player work out their game in their own way in time? As I say, I mean, people, it's about being effective, isn't it? I mean, you know, batting is about scoring runs and there are different ways of scoring runs. And Shiv Shandapal, Steve Smith do it slightly differently. But that's the point I'm making. Even though they will look different, they will meet those they will have. Their head will be still when they hit the ball. They'll keep the hands very close to the body to enable them to move well up and down the wicket. They'll play late. They'll track the ball. They won't move too early. So they will meet those four or five things despite having and scoring shots in different parts of the ground. How much of batting do you think can be learned? So if someone reads your book, they get the fundamentals sorted. How, how much... Is it natural ability to read a length? So, for example, I'm, I'm not very good at batting. How much of that is can be learned? Or is there an element of your just natural ability to, to pick up length, etc.? 
No, a huge amount can be learned. It's practice, it's repetition, it's practice until in the end, it almost becomes autopilot. You pick up visual cues from the bowler's position at release and you instantly know, ah, that's short, right, I move back, ah, that's full, I've got to get forward. Um, but also, as I come back to this position at, at ball release, you need to have your weight and your balance in such a way that you can move easily forward and easily back. And you can access a ball on the off stump or you can access a ball on the leg stump. So the book really describes how you set up and the, the beauties of if you set up well, moving to the shots and the ability to play the shots becomes so much easier. Hmm. Um, you mentioned Shiv Chanderpaul. I wanted to ask you about him. You, you worked with him when you were at the West Indies. Um, he's obviously got one of the most unique batting stances of all time. So was he another player who fit it, who, whose game fit into the fundamentals that you described? 100%. I mean, he, he was very open initially in his setup, but by the time the ball was being released, he was actually brought himself around. He was fairly sideways. Um, what, what Shiv had was uh, a, a very rigorous sort of daily routine. He used to use the bowling machine a lot and he would turn the bowling machine 80, 85 mile an hour, but with maximum swing. So what he really wanted to work on was this idea of tracking the ball and playing the ball really late, close to his body, close to his head. And he would have it maximum eight swing, 85 mile an hour coming in. And he'd do a few buckets on that. And then he'd turn the swing the other way. So he'd have 85 mile an hour maximum swing going out, going out. And then he would work out from there what he needs to play and what he could leave. And he, he was a phenomenal judge of off stump. I mean, he could leave a ball knowing it was going to miss by an inch. And then the next ball would be straight. And yes, he's going to come down and play that well. Um, so he had a very rigorous routine, but he played late, was still hands close to the body and his head very still at impact and had a base to play from. So, yeah, he met all the, the key five fundamentals. I read something that Alistair Cook said a year or so ago about how basically the best batters face the most balls. Is there that element to it as well? Like you can you can know what to do as much as possible, but you need to train the mind and body to actually execute that kind of on autopilot. Yeah, I, I, 100%. I think if you can, it's like building a house, isn't it? Get the foundations right first, you know, get the setup right, get your alignment right. And then it is about reacting to the ball. And, you know, if you, there's lots of drills. I mentioned drills in, in the book to help people to play. So, you know, whether you're a coach working with a player or you're a player trying to develop your game of, of any level, um, you know, there are drills there to help you start to judge the ball. As you're saying, judging length, getting into good positions. Um, you know, so that so that eventually it's like when you learn to drive when, you know, I remember when I learned to drive, I'm thinking of the gearbox, I'm thinking of the clutch. I've got to make sure I don't run that person over. Now, all I do is, is look through the window. You know, everything else is autopilot. And if you practice well and you practice good drills, eventually your judgment becomes almost autopilot and you just move into position without even without even thinking about it. Mm. Um, quite a big thing in, in English cricket over the last year or so. It's not being talked about quite as much this summer. But last summer, um, the pundits on Sky were talking about off-stump guards quite a lot. Was there merit in the move that, that, that players were taking to bat on off-stump? You said earlier that the head should be on off-stump. Is that quite hard to do if the bat is on off-stump? Well, the, the, head, the head will be... Um, I mean, if you look at someone like Zach Crawley at the moment, potentially getting too far across. So his back foot is on off-stump. By the time the ball's released, his head is outside off-stump, which then means he sometimes plays at balls that actually want to be leaving. Or if balls are angling back in, he's actually his back's coming across towards mid-on, so it can create a problem for him. So you want your head in and around off-stump. Now, that might vary. If you're somebody 
who sort of crouches a little bit, your guard will obviously come back more to middle, middle and leg. If you're somebody who stands very tall, you can have your back foot on middle and off off stump and your head is still within the line of off stump and it's not getting across. So you play around with it with players really to make sure that the, you know, the balance is good and they can move up and down the wicket. Um, one of the things I really look for is a straight line. So when you're setting up, there's a straight line from your head down through your hands, close to your body, down through your feet. Now, if that straight line is there, it's very easy to move up and down the wicket. And, you know, as batting, we want to go up and down the wicket, not across the wicket. The problem comes as the head gets slightly outside the feet. Naturally, your movement becomes to the offside, which is great if you want to hit cover drives. But anything that comes back in, there's a tendency to play around the front pad and, be, you know, become a bit of an LBW candidate. Um, I was wondering if you could help me with a, with a batting problem of mine. Um, so when the ball comes, if I'm a right-hander and if a right-arm seamer swings the ball into me, I invariably completely fall over. So like my head is outside off stump and then by the time the ball actually hits me, my, my, if the ball's on leg stump, my, my head's on off stump uh, and I'm basically falling over. What, what, can, I, what can I do to, to not do that? <laughs> well, the first, the first thing is to make sure that when you set up, if you're facing a right arm or swinging in, try to set up with your feet, hips and shoulders lined up back at the bowler's stumps, all right? So you're slightly open to the line of where the ball's being delivered from. The key thing then, as I said before, all the top players, they track the ball, but they don't go to the early line of flight. So although you're watching where the ball's being delivered from, maybe mid-crease or wide of the crease, you don't go at that line. You stay keeping your head back at the stumps. You've also the other thing that helps your movement down the wicket is just to withdraw so your front foot instead of having both feet absolutely lined up parallel bring your front foot an inch or two within just pull it back slightly because it pulls your weight back towards the stumps rather than towards mid off all right this is all about going up and down the wicket rather than going a little bit across the wicket so as the ball then swings in you can meet the finishing line of the ball with your head and if your head is in the right place you can play with a straight bat and you can get the ball back down the ground past the past the stumps. Mm. So when you talk about wanting to move up and down rather than sideways, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, the, well, the only time you, the only time you go across the wicket is to the finishing line of the ball. So it's it's if a ball starts mid crease and then finishes, you know, a foot outside off stump, then obviously your head and front foot go towards the ball and you hit to extra cover mid off. But you've got to wait for as long as possible. What you don't want to do is see a starting line of the ball that might be out on that line, go to it and then find, hang on a minute, it swings in, it seams in or comes back in. Now I'm in the wrong position. I've got to play across my front pad. So you've got to hold yourself for as long as possible and then move to where the ball ends. And if your head goes, your foot will always be in the right place. That's really the secret of batting and certainly playing the moving ball. Um, I have a wonderful still of Babar Azam, who probably at the moment is the best batter, I think, in the world in any format. And, and the, the image is great because it captures, he's in a one-day game playing against Australia. The ball has just been released by one of their seam bowlers, probably 85 mile an hour plus, And it's halfway down and you can see the ball halfway down. Babar Azam has not moved at all. <laughs> he's absolutely rock solid still, beautifully aligned, beautifully balanced, hands close to his body. He's obviously watching the ball and tracking the ball, but he's not going to move until he knows exactly where the ball is when it reaches him. So it's that whole thing of what coaches have been saying probably for 50 years, 100 years, wait. <laughs> wait as long as you can before you finally move. That's, that's really the secret. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. And I'm, I'm, I'm definitely more confident going into this Saturday than I have been previous Saturdays this summer. Um, Toby, just finally, if someone want, likes what they've heard, how can they 
get get their hands on getting to grips? Well, getting to grips has been going pretty well. Actually, it was on the bestsellers list last week, which is great on Amazon, um, and it's going into so it's on Amazon, but it's also going into the county shops as well. I think around the county grounds and Waterstones and various shops up and down the country. So yeah, it's great. And as I said, it, it's really aimed players and coaches, I think, and anyone who loves batting. Hopefully, it simplifies batting um, and, and can help you, you know, for your as you develop your batting. Toby, well, I've uh, found this conversation fascinating. Thanks a lot for your time. Safe travels to New Zealand and, uh, yeah, best of luck with the book. Great to chat to you. Thanks, Yaz. That's all for today's show. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Joe. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. We'll be back next week. Podcast Network.